So as we've been going through the book of Mark, uh, we're getting back into it uh, today, just after our uh, break last week with, uh, with communion and, and doing our little study as we go through uh, the Lord's table. Um, but we'll be back in Mark chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to look at a couple more of the parables that are recorded there in Mark chapter 4. Um, and this uh, is again on that same day where Christ was speaking and teaching by the seashore, um, where the same day that he gave the parable of the soils or the, of the sower that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And these parables are listed kind of one right after the other, so there's not a whole lot of a break in here. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Mark 4, beginning in verse 21. And he also said to them, As a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed, is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret that should, be, that should come, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you, you, you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So in verses 21 through 25, we get this first parable and we see it being light. Being light. Verses 21 and 25 through 25. Now, these verses are actually still part of that parenthesis that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. These verses are by nature still parables and they are, seem to be more tied with the parenthesis that started in verse 10. So this is still Jesus speaking with the disciples and the 12, not just the more broad teaching that he was doing. So instead of the parenthesis ending in verse 20, um, it, it continues on through verse 25. So this isn't circling back to the main public teaching here. This is still that quiet, personal time of explanation and teaching Jesus was having with the disciples. This seems to be a further explanation of the reason Jesus was giving parables and was supposed to be instructive to the disciples. Now, even though there is a parallel of this parable listed in, Mark or, excuse me, in Luke chapter 8, this whole paragraph, verses 21 through 25, are not paralleled together in Matthew or Luke. However, verses 21, 22, 24, and 25 are scattered throughout Matthew and Luke in different settings and with different applications. This seems to imply then that Jesus used these sayings on several occasions in different aspects. But here, in this passage, in this setting, he's speaking to the, to the twelve and those other disciples that are following and giving them a little more specific instruction. Now, I said that these verses were scattered throughout. Verse 21 of Mark 4, verse 21, is seen in Matthew 5, 15, and in Luke eleven thirty three. 
verse 22 is seen in Matthew 10, verse 26, and Luke 12, verse 2. Verse 24 is seen in Matthew 7, 2, and Luke 6, 38. And verse 25 is seen in Matthew 13, verse 12, chapter 25, verse 29, and in Luke 19, 26. They're not tied together in any of those passages. They're, they're scattered throughout these other synoptics and these other passages. So Jesus uses these sayings in other ways for other teachings and other applications. So, but in this one, this is a unique setting that it, we have in Mark. So let's look at it a little bit closely and see what we can gain from it here. It starts with a couple of rhetorical questions. Is a lamp bought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? So we get a couple of rhetorical questions with obvious answers. One is expecting an obvious no, and the other is expecting an obvious yes. So it's kind of a common sense remark. You don't buy a lamp to put it under a basket. Now, the word that we have for basket here should be understood as a, a bushel basket or a, for, or a peck measuring. Uh, this was something, or even a, a bowl that was used uh, around the home for measuring. It's certainly not something that you intended to put over top a lamp. It makes no sense to use it that way. And on, and on the same thing, it says not to put under a bed or a couch. The word that we have for bed here is generally understood to refer to that common cot-like bed found in most homes. This is the same word that is used for bed or stretcher back in, verse, back in chapter 2 with the paralytic who was lowered through the roof when he was told to pick up your bed and walk. It's the same word for bed in there that we have here. It, it is possible, I said it could be referred to as a couch. It is possible that this may be, a, be referring to a dining couch where the person would recline next to the table to eat. So it may have that connotation here. Either is, is plausible. Either way, you don't put a lamp under your bed or under your sofa. It's not there for light. But you do buy a light and you put it on a lampstand. You put it where it does the most good, where its light can go throughout the room. In most uh, common homes in the time, there would have been a, a shelf likely on a wall or a little niche in the wall that was designed for a little lamp stand to, or little lamp to be put on. More wealthier homes would have maybe had a separate lamp standing someplace else. Uh, but commonly the idea is a, a little shelf on the wall uh, or even on a table to send the, the light through. But we see here that Jesus is using all of these objects. These are all common everyday objects everyone would have been accustomed to. And that's part of something Jesus does with all of his parables. He always goes back to something that is common and every day that everyone can, I know exactly what you're talking about. No, of course I wouldn't put a lamp under my bed. That doesn't make any sense. I don't put a bushel over it. You put a lamp where it does the most good. 
Now, the, the, the lamp, let's talk about this real quick. It's a, a simple oil lamp, a little terracotta bowl-like container with an opening on one end for a wick to go into and a handle on the other end and an opening at the top to pour more oil in. It's a very simple object with one purpose, to give light, to reveal things that are hidden by darkness, if you will. And then in verse 23, Jesus gives a call to understand what he says. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. This verse is almost identical to verse 9, where Jesus finishes the parable of the soils to the crowd. And he says, anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. And now he's saying the same thing to the disciples. But then he immediately follows that up with a warning. Following this call to understand, Jesus warns the disciples. He says, take heed to what you're hearing. Pay close attention. They needed to pay attention to what he was saying. Pay close attention, especially to spiritual matters. This proverb here about measure is about the effort they put into understanding what he's saying. The measure, the amount of diligent effort put into understanding the teaching. That same measure, that same amount would be used to measure the profit they got from it. But the reward is greater because we also, we also see here that those who hear, those that understand, will be given more to them. The more light given, the more light understood, the more light given. And we don't need to under, we need to remember that this isn't about uh, physical or material profit. This is on this is on a spiritual level. On a spiritual level, the more you understand the teachings and, and understand the scripture and what we have, then as you assimilate it and live it out, the more truth will be given and you'll be able to receive and understand. Verse 25 starts with a positive. Those who will receive, those who that receive will receive more. Those that have received the truth and those who will assimilate it into their life, more truth will be given because they can receive more. That capacity is greater. But there's also the dire warning in verse 25. Those that do not have, what they do have will be taken away. Essentially, those that have and don't use the ability to understand or perceive truth blunt that ability uh, we need to jump back just briefly back in verse 11. Jesus is talking to the disciples. To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. So the disciples, those who are truly following and are, have the ability given to them by God, by the Holy Spirit, to understand what is being taught. But if they don't use it, if they don't put the effort in to try and understand it, they're going to dull that ability. 
I'm gonna pick on you guys real quick. Who's gonna take Greek in a year or two? Use it or lose it. <laughs> Same kind of principle, use it or lose it. Because if you don't stick with your vocab, guess what happens? You're constantly struggling with vocab. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And Mr. Stearns will tell you the same thing, and so will Dr. Little in Hebrew. <laughs> um, so it's the same principle, use it or lose it. But what's, what do we have at the point here in, the, in these four or five verses? First, we need to remember that these verses, Jesus is speaking to the 12 and those disciples that are more intent in following him. then we can understand to see that his message is the light. He's investing in them. He has worked with them. They have the, the ability and the knowledge of what he's teaching. They needed to understand and then, like the lamp, be put on the lampstand to provide light. Now, I, I kind of ran over it quickly. Back in verse 22, it says, hidden things revealed and secret things will be brought to light. This, I kind of went back and forth on trying to figure this out. For the most part, it, it seems to be understood that it, it's referring to the things that are being, that were hidden at that time, especially from those that were rejecting the truth, like the Pharisees and those those that were following them, things were being hidden. And we talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. But those that have received the light still needed to show the light. And though things were hidden, they would be revealed in time. One author took it specifically uh, and said Christ was was trying, was offering the kingdom, it was being rejected, so things were being hidden, but he still was working with the disciples and they still needed to present it and things would be revealed later with the beginning of the church. I understand where he's getting, I'm not completely sold, that's what the, the point is here, but that's, uh, that was one author's interpretation and understanding of it. So those that are disciples, those that they had the truth, they needed to still share the truth. They still needed to be that light. Now this brings us to verse 26. We don't really have a, a good break here. It's just listed parable, parable, parable. But we, we kind of need to remember the verse 10 through verse 25 is one big parenthesis in the middle of Mark re, uh, uh, repeating parables that Jesus was teaching, giving examples of parables that Jesus was teaching. So in verse 26, we kind of pick up. So I'm going to read verses 26 to 34 real quick here. And he, said, the and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and raise by day. And the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself. First the blade, then the head. After that, the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. 
Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the ground, is smaller than all the other seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So in verses 26 to 34, we see a couple of parables. We see seeds of the kingdom. Seeds of the kingdom. Now, to be fair, verses 33 and 34 are a closing summaries, but we'll get, we'll get down to them. So our first parable that we see here is the growing seed in verses 26 to 29. The growing seed in verses 26 to 29. We know it's a kingdom parable because it tells us right up front. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed. It's a simile. And most of the kingdom parables are. The kingdom of God is like, is as. But what's unique is that this parable is only found in Mark. It's not found in Matthew, it's not found in Luke, and it's certainly not found in John. It is unique only to Mark. And this one seems to be an expansion or a supplement to the parable of the soils by expanding the, the, the idea of spiritual growth seen in the good soil. So just briefly, let's back up real quick. Um, you don't have to turn back, but in verse... 8 of chapter 4 says, But other seed fell on good ground and yielded crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So if we understand this as kind of a supplement or an expansion of, of that, we, we kind of get an idea of where we're coming from. Again, we're seeing seed sown in the ground. Again, we see the common practice of sowing seeds. The seeds' growth is the main point of the story. Again, the sower is noted, but not identified. We don't talk about who he is. We don't, talk, we don't give any information about it. Just the sower is casting seeds. He's left unidentified. He has little impact in the parable. We, we, we reference him, but we don't really deal with him. And he really does, at the beginning, he does nothing more than so. He plants the seed and then returns to his normal routines. It says he, he plants it, he, he scatters it, and then he goes and he sleeps by night and rise by day. He goes back to whatever his normal routine is. He lets the seed and the earth take care of it for him. He leaves the seed to, to itself to grow because he doesn't quite know how growth happens. He may understand the need of water and certain conditions, maybe the application of some fertilizer, but he doesn't really know what causes the seed to grow. He says he leaves it for the earth yields crop by itself. This shows that the sower has no control over the seed. All he can do is plant it, probably water it, 
if he's able to, and lets it go by itself. Uh, that word there, itself, the word that we have there is used only twice in the New Testament. We find it here, uh, and it's the word atumas. It's, you can hear the word automatic there. The only other use of that word in the New Testament isn't found in Acts chapter 12, verse 10, where the angel is bringing Peter out of Herod's prison, and it references the gate that opens on its own accord. That is the only other use of this word in the New Testament. It says, the earth yields the crop on itself, by itself. And then Jesus gives a description of the yield, of, of, of the growth. First, the blade breaks through the ground. Then the head grows, then the grain grows in the head. What we seem to have here is, is to show that the sower can't force the harvest. It will come in the prescribed season. It has to grow from the, from the seed. It has to have the blade, turn into the stalk, get the, get the head and the head fill with grain before anything else can happen. There's a natural process that God has used for the, used for the growing of crops and the man can't force it. But when the grain is ripe, the sower comes with the sickle to harvest. Again, we see a common use, a common idea of, of, of coming with a sickle and reaping the harvest. Now the sower is the reaper coming for the harvest. Though he didn't produce the grain, he came to preserve the result achieved by the seed sown. So what do we have going on in this parable? Well, there's a couple of views. Some view this parable to be eschatological, dealing with things in the future and in times. Especially with this sense and this discussion of harvest being in the idea of harvesting the kingdom as a whole. And that's a, a little covenantal, a little too covenantal for me. Um, essentially, this view holds that Jesus is recognizing that his sowing hadn't brought a harvest, that his work so far hadn't brought a harvest, but the sowing was accomplished within the disciples, and he is trusting this sowing to God to bring fulfillment for a future consummation. So it is, it's seen as a future harvest of the kingdom. I'm not totally sold on this one. Another view sees that this is a picture of the gospel's work in an individual's life. The process of spiritual development, progressive sanctification, is slow but orderly and cannot be rushed or forced by human means. The harvest then is seen as the gathering of evangelistic events. So the Christian worker is to sow the seed of the word of God and conserve the results brought by God, all the time allowing God's word to work in the individual's life as God has established. I kind of like this one better. That's kind of where I'm at at the moment. <laughs> but I'm, uh, the other view, I just, I can't get behind. 
So we kind of get a picture here of, you know, there's, there's going to be seed, seed sown in good soil, but we can't rush it. Spiritual growth, spiritual development will come as the word of the God, it works in their lives and the spirit will bring that harvest to fulfill. Now, no, next we'll, we'll jump into verses 30 to 34 and we see here the mustard seed. We see the mustard seed here. It's very plain, the mustard, the parable of the mustard seed. Now, Jesus begins with rhetorical questions here about the kingdom of God. Uh, he says, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or to what parable shall we picture it? Maybe not rhetorical questions. Uh, these questions may actually have been to the crowd to kind of stimulate the hearers' thinking and to get them involved in, in coming up with an adequate simile. But then he, he answers. We don't have an editorial note of no one of him looking around and not getting an answer, so, but he seems to have one there. So he, he uses it. He says it is like a mustard seed. We should note here that this is the only time Jesus uses we to refer to himself and the hearers. To what should we liken the kingdom of God? To what parable should we use to picture it? And this double question, again, is only found in Mark. But he likens the kingdom of God, to a mustard seed. From the description that we have here uh, of the plant, it is quite possibly a black mustard seed. There are a couple of varieties uh, common in the area, in the region, a black mustard seed, a white mustard seed, and one more that I'm not remembering. Um, but the black mustard seed was commonly grown and cultivated for use as a condiment. So it seems to be the one that's being referred to here. And he says the mustard seed is, is tiny. It is one of the smallest seeds in the region. It is about the size of a grain of sand. It is a tiny little seed. And really this parable, this simile that he's using is kind of a common teaching tool. The tiny size of the seed is, was often used in other proverbial sayings and rabbinical teachings. Jesus uses the mustard seed, I think, in other areas as well, but we definitely have it here. And he says, from this small seed grows a large herb plant. Some have even recorded this plant to have grown 10 to 12 feet Tall. And that's part of the reason why we think it's a black mustard seed is because that's the kind of plant that we've seen, that, that people have seen this way. It, it seems that the good soil, that planting in good soil and the warm climate of that area seems to really cause these plants to grow quickly and to grow large. And even this reference to birds, birds have been noted landing in the branches, eating the seeds, and even making nests in it because they grow so large, it becomes tree-like. Now there's a couple of things here with the birds. 
Um, the mention of birds nesting in the branches seems to reflect some Old Testament passages like Daniel chapter 4, verse 12, Ezekiel 17, verse 23, and chapter 31, verse 6. Uh, even Psalm 104, verse 12, there's references to birds nesting in trees. And off, often in these passages, the large tree and the branches represent a vast, stable kingdom that is able to support, and, we, and the birds are kind of seen as prosperous, or are elements of prosperous in the kingdom. However, there's another view of the birds that we need to consider here. If we jump back to the parable of the soils, it says that some seed fell on the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. When Jesus gave the explanation of the parable of the soils to the disciples, he, he calls the birds of the air Satan. And that's true in all three of the synoptic gospels. All three parallels all refer to the birds of the air to Satan. So it's possible that the reference to birds here represents Satan or his forces working against God. But again, it's kind of taking the, the tree grown from the seed to, to be the kingdom of God uh, and, and, and its growth, which to a point is, is proper here, but we need to be careful with it. Um, so to, to see the birds as being rep representative of Satan um, Working against God is one view. It may be here that the birds may be seen as creating problems by eating the seed, therefore not having a harvest, uh, or that the nesting, uh, some argue that the nesting is seen as sin or evil infiltrating into believers or into the kingdom of God. I'm not terribly sold on that. The way it is delivered in the parable itself makes me feel like it's a good thing, that it's an element of prosperous, that this mighty tree has grown and the birds are able to land and make their nests and it gives them shade. The obvious point from this parable is that like the mustard seed, the kingdom of God starts from a very small beginning, but it seemed to have stupendous growth. So we see here that just because there's a small beginnings, that small beginnings don't doom something to insignificance. But the final development can be amazing and large and great. The difficulty comes with understanding how this applies. I came across like three variations of three main understandings, and I really didn't like any of them. They just didn't seem to work. But the only consistent element that they all carried was that though Jesus began with a small group of believers that were discounted by the leaders of the nation, the believers of Jesus Christ have now grown world round. No explanation, further explanation is given here, and Mark just closes with a summary statement. 
He says that Jesus taught with many parables like these, with the parable of the soils, of the growing seed, and the mustard seed. And that he didn't teach publicly without using parables. At this point, he began only using parables in teaching publicly. But we note that when he was alone with the disciples, with the 12 and those other true followers coming along with him, that he would explain as he needed to. Just like what we saw in that conversation from beginning in verse 10 down through verse 25. He explained the parable of the soils and gave them instruction. As we kind of wind down here, I'm going to ask you a question. Who's heard of the ancient trees in southern, ancient date trees in southern Israel? I know Mariah has. And by ancient, I don't mean it's been alive for thousands of years, but that it, these trees have grown from 2,000-year-old seeds. I'm going to read a, a blurb from the Guinness Book of World Records. The oldest seed germinated is a 2,000-year-old date seed originally discovered at Masada in the 1960s. Um, Dr. Sarah Salon from a, a uh, research center in Israel as, and Dr. Elaine Solway of a kibbutz in Israel planted the seed in 2005. The seed was one of several collected from the 1963 to 65 excavations of Masada. Five seeds were obtained. One succeeded in germinating. Two were kept back uh, as, uh, for radiocarbon dating as controls. The other three were planted. And after eight weeks, one germinated. And they took fragments of the one that germinated and, radio, and radiocarbon dated it. And the results were uh, um, agreed with the control seeds. So just, just a little bit of proof and verification. Yes, these kind of came all from the same place at the same time. These seeds coincide with the siege of Masada by the Romans. This was an extinct, commonly thought, or currently thought of extinct species of date palms that was used for medicinal purposes in ancient times. The plant, the tree that grew is, was named Methuselah, uh, being after the Bible's oldest man. But that's not the only one. That was the first one. A couple years later, five more trees germinated from other groups, from other groupsing of seeds, all about 2,000 years old. And on August 23rd, 2021, just a couple weeks ago, the Arva Institute staff harvested three bunches of dates from the world-famous ancient date palms. This is the second year of harvesting fruit from this previously extinct tree. This year's harvest from Hannah, which was another one of the trees, produced almost 700 dates. Last year, the first Harvest only had 111. This tree uh, was pollinated by Methuselah and two other ancient date palms named Adam and Jonah. They were having fun with the names. But there, there are six 
of these trees, three male and three female, that have grown from 2,000-year-old seeds that were discovered in excavation sites. These dates are, have come from trees that grew from seeds from the time of the siege of Masada, from the time of the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, and God has designed these seeds to grow naturally. God can still do extraordinary things. God has used small beginnings to make great changes. God can use a small seed to produce 30 times the grain. God can use a small seed to create a tree, tree-like plant to house and feed birds to produce a common condiment for human consumption. God can use the seed of the word of God in our hearts and in our lives and in the lives of others we know to bring a harvest of salvation and a future harvest at the rapture. So let's do our job and be light where we are Let's keep sowing seeds of God's word. Let's keep being faithful to God and we'll see what he will bring about. Let's close with a word of prayer.